Amen and amen. If you have your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. I was just told that we were 10 minutes behind, but I never known anybody to leave the game at overtime, so we should be good. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. This is God's holy, infallible word. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one would scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Friends, it was Mary J. Blige that penned these words. Real love, I'm searching for a... I knew some of y'all knew that song. Someone to set my heart free real love. I'm searching for a real love. I'm out to have a real love. Come on, Mary. Friends, what Mary says in this song was true for all of us. We were searching for some real love. We were searching for someone to set our hearts free. Well, Mary, we found someone who gave us some real love. And it is summed up in one word, Jesus. We found someone to set our hearts free, and his name is Jesus. Now, Jesus would put it like this, whom the Son sets free is free indeed. We all desire this morning, if we're honest, real love. Not fake, not fickle, or uncertain love, but a love we can depend on. A love that is unchanging. A love that is immovable. A love that doesn't walk out when times are hard. A love that doesn't divorce me when I fall short. We're searching for real love. A love that gives us hope. The general truth here is we all need a love that provides assurance and eternal hope. God love gives us just that. This is what last week verse argued, that God's love provides us with hope. A kind of hope that is never ashamed, never disappointed, Paul told us that in the midst of suffering, 
the Christian is surrounded by the love of God. He told us that God really understands and cares about us. And how do we know? Well, according to, according to Romans chapter 5, verse 5, it says, Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. So the foundation of our hope is the love of God. Our future confidence depends on our present confidence in God's love. It is God's love that is poured out and showered on us that gives us the confidence that we shall overcome. But this love is subjective because our hearts are not always confident in God's love. Do I got some witnesses this morning? Our hearts are not always confident in God's love. This leads to the natural question. Well then, how do I know God loves me? Let me say that again. How do I know that God loves me? I'm going to make that personal this morning. As you think about yourself, how do you know that God loves you? How do I know I have, a found, I, how do I know I have found real love? How do I know I have found a love that has set my heart free? The next verse here, Paul tells us why we can have this assurance of God's love. It is because... We have the objective fact that he loves us so much that he sent his son in the world to die for us. Let me say that again. The subjective reality is our love. Our love and our confidence in God's love is up and down. The objective reality of God's love is in the fact that he sent his son to die for us. That cannot change whether you believe it or not. God died for us. So pay attention, Mary J. Blige. Real love is in this text. Friends, what is love? Friends, God is love. God is love. God is love. You cannot know love until you know God. You cannot know love until you know God. 1 John 4, 8 says, God is love. To be a stranger to love is to be a stranger of God. Because God is love. Love is not merely an attribute of God. It is the very nature and being of God. God is love. Note that the Bible doesn't say love is God as if love defines and dictates who God is. 
Oh, you better not mix that up and change that around and say love is God. You'll be making all kinds of gods. But instead, John gives love a face. It roots the definition of love in a person, not just any person, an unchangeable person, a one who is and always will be. The Bible says he's the same yesterday and forevermore. Love has a face. God is love. Love does not define God, but God defines love. Friends, God is love. In the climactic demonstration of love came when he sent his own son to die on the cross. When he sent his own son To die on the cross. Oh, feel the weight of that church. God sent his only son to die for you. That is love. Uncomprehensible love. And there's the jewel right there. God's love on the cross. But have you ever noticed how a jeweler, if he has a pearl or a diamond or some other beautiful gem, will take a black backdrop to put that beautiful gem up against and then put a light on it. It seems like the darker the backdrop, the more it enhances the gem. Usually, he uses a piece of black velvet, and he'll put that beautiful stone up against it. Then he'll turn a light on it. It exalts that stone. It just lifts that stone right up like a night sky does stars. Now, I want you to pay attention to what Paul does in this text to prove to us that God has proven his love for us. Let this picture of the jewel in the black cloth kind of kind of linger in the back of your mind as we dive into the text. We know God loves us because he loved us when we were weak and ungodly. Let me say that again. You didn't get excited. We know that God loves us because he loved us when we were weak and ungodly. Let's be real this morning. If you want to know If God loves you, if you want to know if God loves us, you must ask the question, when did God love us? When did he first display his love to me? This is simply important, right? Because sometimes you have people that come into your life when you're on the come up. Y'all know who I'm talking about. Those people who seem to just appear. When life is getting good and when you get that promotion and you get all that you've been wanting, it seems like when you're on the come up, you got people that come after you. All of a sudden, you got a friend request from them. All of a sudden, they're inboxing you. All of a sudden, they want to pay you a bit more attention. All of a sudden, which is why New Edition asked the question. Oh, I love New Edition. They said, sunny days. Everybody loves them. But tell me, baby. 
Can you stand the rain? Oh, it's easy to be around me when the sun is shining, but it's another thing to stick in there with me when the rain is falling. All of us got friends that are around when the sun is out. Usually the people whose love is only around during sunny days are in question. You ever question someone's motive on why they loved you? Especially when they come on your timeline when the butter is good. You know how it is. Nah, for real, bro. Why you hanging around me, man? Real talk, bro. Every time, the only time I see you is when you want something. Y'all got people in y'all like they only call when they want something. Here they go calling again. I ain't got no money. I'm broke. But on the other hand, when someone is in your life doing the hard times, their love is less in question. Why? Because the darkness of your situation magnifies the authenticity of their love. But God's love arrives in our lives at an even worse state. God didn't arrive when we were down on our luck. This is what Paul does. He expresses the darkness of the human condition. That we may see the love of God more clearly. You cannot understand the love of God until you understand the condition you were in. So Paul brings up our condition that we may see the love of God more clearly. He uses a backdrop of the human condition to help the jewel of God's grace stand out. Now look at verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Now, Paul uses the word weak. The NASB says, utterly helpless. Paul is depicting the terrible state of despair man was in. Without Jesus Christ, man absolutely has nothing in him that gives him the ability to pursue God or his holiness. You have absolutely nothing in you that gives you the ability to want God. People say, I just woke up and wanted Jesus one day. Really? Really? Did you really just wake up and want Jesus one day? You just stopped what you were doing and said, God, I wanted you. But grace was searching for you way before you were ever searching for grace. Can I get a witness this morning? Paul uses the word weak to help us out. Without Jesus Christ, Man has nothing to give God. Paul is not talking physically weak, but morally weak. So don't go lift weights. <laughs> Friends, let me put it plain. God saved you when you couldn't save yourself. God rescued you when you could not rescue yourself. You were at the bottom of the ocean dead as a corpse, and Jesus didn't throw a rope out to you. He dived into the pool of your sin, swam down to the bottom, grabbed you, brought you on shore, and breathed life into you. That's what happened. Truth be told. Let's get it. He loved you when you were running away from him. He loved you when you were spitting in his face. That's when he loved you. I tell a lot of husbands when they get ready to get married. I love her. 
I know you do, lover. Come here and read this text right here. Right here. Let's just zoom in. Husband, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And do you know what that means? That means he was loving her when she didn't want nothing to do with him. Once you explain that, that 50-50 stuff goes out of the window. Jesus was loving us when it was 100-0. 100% 0%. He was loving you. God was loving us when we were spitting him, spitting in his face. And you know you didn't want anything to do with God. Come on now, let's go back. I know I got to help the saints because y'all be having amnesia. Let's go back for a minute. I'm talking prior to salvation. When you were in every club. Come on now. I'm talking about when you were in your fornication. I'm talking about when you were on the screen indulging in pornography. I'm talking about when you were reckless. I'm talking about when you had anger issues. I'm talking about when nobody else wanted you. I'm talking about when you were disgusting and you were the scumbags of the earth. That's when he came to you. Do you remember? Let me get some Bible in here just in case I get an email. This is what I'm going to send back to you. Ephesians 2.1, and you were dead in trespasses and sin. You had no power to come to him, which is why Jesus says in John, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. God didn't start loving us in our come up. This is Paul's backdrop for God's love. But in our helplessness. Why does he do this? To magnify the love of God. So that you're not at the center of the stage. God moves into the center of the stage. God after you, not you after God. Paul wants you to see how ugly you were towards God. And that's a hard pill for us to swallow. He sent his, here it comes the jewel, son to die for you while you were like that. Friends, we must highlight who God gave up. He gave up Jesus. I want to make sure that we're on the same page when I say Jesus. I'm talking about the one born of a virgin Mary. Co-eternal with the Father, lived the impeccable life, gave that life up on the cross, rose again from the dead. I'm talking about that Jesus. He died. For who? Look at verse 6. This may be the most glorious phrase in all of the Bible. Verse 6 says he died for who? The ungodly. He died for the ungodly. So if you're not ungodly, he's not talking about you. Go back on Facebook. Don't pay attention. God died for those who did not love him or respect him as God. So the glorious one dies to save those who rejected his glory, namely all of us. See, this is why you don't have to worry about Will God love me when I stumble? 
Will God love me when, when, when I do ungodly things? Because Jesus gave his life for you while you were ungodly. So his love is not based on how perfect you are. His love showed up when you weren't giving him anything. So why would he leave you in the middle of your mess when he showed up in the middle of your mess? This is not rocket science. This is really simple. But it's hard for us because we're sinners. And we need to be reminded over and over and over and over again. God's love has nothing to do with how beautiful you are. You can take the soul in out now. No, I'm just messing around. <laughs> but how great is his love? How should we respond to people who say, if I walked into the church, the building would collapse? What do they mean? I'm such a dirty, rotten sinner that I am beyond anything Christianity has to offer. Sure, you heard this before. I'm too bad for God. I'm too far gone for God to love me. You simply say this to them. He died for the ungodly. I got good news for you, friend. He died for the ungodly. You can come to church and the building will not fall because his love is going to hold the building up. You're good. Come on in. We know God loved us because he loved us while we were sinners. Watch the verse. For one would scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. Watch verse 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now the word sinner here, the Greek word is homotolos. The word that means devoted to sin. I'm getting better at making it seem like I know how to say Greek, though. <laughs> you keep doing this week in and week out, you kind of figure out how to just let it flow off the tongue. The word, the word means devoted to sin, wicked, perverse. While we were in this helpless, ungodly state, we were also devoted to sin, in wicked and perverse. We were devoted to the very things that God hated. The backdrop just got a little bit darker. We were on our Bobby Brown. And many of you guys have been watching that Bobby Brown show. He says, it's my prerogative. I do what I want to do. Come on, it's, it's one thing to be helpless and weak, but then it's another thing when you're devoted to it. This is almost like the cheating spouse. Let me come to your doorstep. It's one thing if you have a weak moment and failed in the relationship. But when the spouse discovers it was not a slip up, but this happens all the time, this is who you are? You actually love this thing? How do they come to this conclusion? Well, because the spouse practices and is devoted to it. You are truly helpless to this thing. How much harder is it for the spouse to forgive when I find out that it was not just a slip up? It was the very function of what you do. 
We didn't have a slip up. But this was our lifestyle. We don't just sin. We are sinners. Before salvation. We were in bed with sin when God died for us. And we had no plans to break up. Can we be honest this morning? I had no plan to break up with my sin. I was comfortable with it. And I enjoyed it. No one sins because it doesn't feel good. We sin because it does feel good. And we were devoted to it. What Paul says in verse 7 in summary is you'll be lucky to get someone to die for a person like that. You'll be lucky. You, 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 I mean, maybe, maybe you'll get lucky to get someone to die for a good person. Uh, a person that maybe does good in the world. Someone may die for them, but God dies for the ungodly. He dies for the wicked. He dies for the undeserving. He dies for the scumbag. And Paul says that is astonishing. When we were on scumbag mode, he died for me. Do you see how amazing that is? That love came in darkness. Which is why the, that one hymn goes, amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shall die for me? Some people have ventured to say there is division in the Trinity on this, the son dying for us. Let me explain. Because they say Jesus has to beg the Father to love us. But what they fail to realize is it was the Father who sent the Son, and the Son was willing to come. There is no division in the Trinity. Your Father loves you. Jesus is not begging him to love you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. That's what the verse says. Why? Because he loved us. The Son willingly came to do what? To save us. Now, I love in the book of Matthew when we get to see Jesus loving sinners. This is what the book of Matthew says. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. You see that. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick Go and learn what the, come on, Jesus, with your bad self. Go and learn what this means. I deserve mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but the sinner. Let me give you some background. You really can't appreciate this text until you understand what is going on. Jesus has just been doing great and mighty things. He's healed people. He, he has called par the paralytic to, to move again. Jesus 
has opened blind eyes and here he goes about his way. A crowd is following him and he runs into a tax collector by the name of Matthew. You better watch out because Jesus will show up at your job and, and, and take you right out of your job. He rolls up on Matthew and he says, Matthew, follow me. Now you've got to understand when he pulls up on Matthew, he's not just pulling up on anybody. Matthew is the worst of worst. He is the vilest of the vow. He's a tax collector. He's a scumbag. He's not like, he's a thief. People hate him. And Jesus tells this sinner called Matthew to follow him. Jesus just don't talk about it. He bees about it. Oh, I love Jesus Christ that he rose up on him, a scumbag, and tells him to follow him. Now, here's the thing. When Jesus tells Matthew to follow him, everything else he has done up to this point is not controversial yet because everybody else is good with everybody else he called to himself, but you call the tax collector. We can't stand the tax collectors. We don't hang around the tax collectors. The tax collectors are not even allowed in the church. But here's the thing. Jesus doesn't care about what mankind has to say. He sets his reputation aside. Not only does he tell Matthew to follow him, but he goes to his house. Oh, Jesus is a real friend. He will go to your crib and he will show up and he don't care what nobody has to say. Now, here's the crazy part. You can kind of see Matthew's lifestyle because the only friends that Matthew has is more sinners and more tax collectors. You know you bad when all your friends are no good. Our birds of a feather flock together. Now you can imagine that people are thinking now, birds of a feather flock together. Is Jesus flocking with them now? Is he rolling with them now? Is he okay with them now? Let me put a parenthesis here for just a moment. A lot of times we think to, uh, to the degree that we are in the vicinity of sin that we affirm sin, but that's not necessarily true because Jesus is in the vicinity of sin, but he never affirmed sin but Jesus had a plan and what was his plan because who rose up to him and questions him nothing but the Pharisees come up to Jesus you know how they are the haters always show up on the scene and so they pull they don't even pull Jesus to the side they're, they're, they're actually some punks in my mind. I'm like, go to the man who you got the issue with. Instead, they go to his homeboys. They go to his homeboys and they say, hey, why is your teacher eating with sinners and tax collectors? Jesus overheard. You know Jesus is a G. So he rose up on them and he answers the question for himself. And he says that I didn't come to save those who are healthy. I came to save those who are sick. How can the church save those who are sick if we never go to them? How can we be a light in darkness if we never go into darkness? Jesus didn't yell into the crowd. He didn't just stand from a distance. He actually went into their house and ate with them. Let me say this. What's up with the Pharisees? Why are they all twisted up and bundled up? Because grace messes everything up. Grace messes all. Oh. 
I'm getting happy now. Grace messes everything up. Let me explain. Because as humans, we like to make it real cute, right? The righteous people over here, the unrighteous people over here, the good people over here, the bad people over here. Grace is like my two-year-old daughter. My son, he likes to, after Uno, he likes to put the red with the red, the purple with the purple, the green with the green. And my two-year-old daughter will come and just wreck his spouse. And he say, Daddy! Tell her not to do that, and he'll straighten it up again, and here comes Grace messing it all up again because Grace got a way of wrecking the place and saying God hangs around the ungodly and those who claim to be godly. Grace messes us all up, and they finally see Grace in the flex because God doesn't just talk about it. He bees about it. Why, Matthew? Why tax collectors? Why sinners? Is it because they're special? No. It's because I want to showcase my love. I need a black backdrop so that you can see the light of God. Number three. We know God loves us because of the greater lesser concept. We know God loves us because of the greater lesser concept. Now pay attention because... Verse 9 to 11 gets a little bit technical. Verse 9 says, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Okay, so watch what Paul is doing. You know he's a brilliant theologian. In light of the dark backdrop he has painted of us, ungodly, helpless sinners, he wants to give all believers an argument that assures them of the love of God. How does he do this? And how do you know this, Pastor? Because of this little phrase in the verse. Much more. Much more. Highlight that in your Bible. This is a, this is a comparison argument or an argument from the greater to the lesser. You see much more repeated in verses 9 10 and 11, Paul gives a total of three lesser to greater arguments. In each case, Paul says, if God has done blank in the past, he most certainly will do blank in the future. Let me say that again. If God has done blank in the past, he will most certainly do blank in the future. Picture it like this. If a father who gives up his kidney to save his son's life, will he not certainly give his son $100 if it would indeed save his life? Of course he will. How can you be certain? Well, duh. He gave his kidney. What is $100? Or if someone is able to lift 100 pounds, it's a no-brainer they can lift 20 pounds. This is Paul's argument. The thing in the past was the harder thing. If God has already done the harder thing in the past, then we can be confident he will do the easier thing in the future. So let's see what the Father has done. Number one, verse nine, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood. Talk about a hard thing. How do you make unrighteous people righteous? 
The only way was for Jesus to incarnate himself as one of us and live a life we couldn't live and die a death we don't deserve. Was that hard? Would you give up your son to die for thieves and murderers and the ungodly? Would you do that? Would you give up your daughter to die for those who don't deserve it? You don't know how hard this was for God to do. We do not understand how hard it was for God to crush his son. But the Gospel of John captures it. It says this, For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. Let me give you a picture here. This is not human love. This is divine love. The love between the Father and the Son is great. You take all the stars of the universe, you take all the energy in the world, and you put it together, and it does not express the intensity of love that is flowing between the Father and the Son. And God gives him up to save us. Now look at the verse. Notice it is in past tense. We have been justified by his blood. Now watch the future tense. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Future tense. What's the point? If he can save us from his wrath when we were unrighteous, we should be confident he can save us from his wrath in hell now that we are declared righteous. If God was able to deliver us when we were unrighteous, how much more will he save us from the flames of hell now that we are righteous? Number two, verse 10. If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Talk to us, Paul. Notice the word reconcile. This means to bring from a position of being an enemy to a position of being a friend. God takes us from enemy to friend. All those who are unsafe are enemies of God. Every single person in the world who is not in the Lord Jesus are enemies. They're not children of God. They're enemies of God. You can't get the gospel if you do not understand you were an enemy. Now, let's be real. It is not easy to be reconciled to your enemy. It's just not easy. It is not easy to become friends with someone you do not like. If I don't like you, don't talk to me. I'm deleting you off of social media. Don't, don't talk to me. I don't want to be around you because I don't want to punch nobody. Right? But God reconciles us while we were enemies. Being someone's friend who is your enemy is not an easy task. This is why Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now watch this. This is not me. This is the Bible. Even Christians need help with this. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. How you doing? Not doing so well. So that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. 
For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you, watch this, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? It's easy to love those who love you. You're not proving that you're a loving person by loving those who love you. He says, do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You, there, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Christians are to be pursuing their enemies. Welcome to Christianity. Welcome to Christianity. The symbol is not a pillow, but a cross. We're called to tough love. Instead, we're running from our enemies. Or what's preached is shake your haters off or get rid of your haters, you know, or your haters are your elevators and all this other crazy stuff out here. But Jesus says, love your enemy, which is harder, to save an enemy or to save a friend? An enemy, right? You think of the worst person in the world that you do not like, and they were getting ready to fall off a cliff. Would you save them? I don't think so. You say you may fall with them. Okay. Yet God reconciled us while we were enemies. Now that we are reconciled, it is no stretch to be confident that we will be saved. How? By his life. That little phrase right there deserves a sermon all by itself. By his life. I'm going to put a parenthesis here. Because a lot of times... When we preach the gospel, we stop at justification. We do not realize that the gospel also sanctifies us. And so we don't have a holistic vision of the gospel. Jesus doesn't just justify you. He sanctifies you. How? By his life. You died with Christ and you rose with Christ. Christ is your life. There's a lot of debate on what this means. This may be an indirect reference to the resurrected life of Christ, which is the possession of every child of God to enable Christians to live lives of progressive victory over sin. We are continually overcoming our sin. You can only overcome sin that has been defeated by Jesus. Through our spiritual union with Christ, the Bible says when Christ, who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him. You see how connected you are to Jesus. In Philippians it says that I may know him in the power of his resurrection. Philippians says for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He is my everything. I love the way Philippians 4.13, a popular verse. I can do all things through who? Through Christ who strengthens me. Who's giving you power to keep going when you want to give up? Who's giving you power to keep pressing on when you don't want to press on anymore? Jesus in you, the hope of glory. God in us. The very resurrected life of Christ is the Christian life. 
And this life is given to God's children to help them overcome sin daily. Quit trusting in yourself. Quit trusting in your tactics and see Jesus bigger and greater and better and stronger. And you will overcome the sin that is bounding you, Christian. Oh, I wish I can preach it how I feel it. Oh, number three, more than that, we also rejoice in God, our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. God has reconciled us in the past. Then in our present perspective can only be rejoicing in God through Jesus Christ. Friends, it is because of Jesus and his finished work that all believers should rejoice. And how can we not? He has justified us and reconciled us, and he most certainly will glorify us. I love the way Paul puts it in Philippians. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you. Somebody needs that this morning. That who he who has began a good work in you. Some of you been doubting on whether God was going to give up on you, but that's a word for you right there. He who has begun a good work in you will what? Bring it to completion at the end of the day when Lord Jesus Christ shows up. Friends, God has invested too much into you to abandon you. You know how it is. Once I put down that down payment, you better believe I'm going to be there. Come hell's a high water. My cock can stop. I'm walking. I'm getting my down payment. Once I didn't put the money into it, I'm not turning away from it. God has invested too much into his church to turn his back on her. But in a world of uncertainty and change, it is good to have at least one objective reality. That the love of God never changes. Friends, you haven't encountered God until you encounter the love of God. And once you encounter the love of God, your life is never the same again. Your life is never the same again. Oh, that we would encounter the love of God in this place. That God would shower his love on us. When we think of his love, we should rejoice. What has been the key word for us in chapter 5? Rejoice in verse 2, rejoice in verse 3, rejoice in verse 11. The key word is rejoice. Paul is excited about his salvation. Why is the church not excited about our salvation? Why are you not rejoicing that you are saved by God? Why? Do we not rejoice? Why do we not rejoice? You know what David had to pray? Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Now let me pause for a second. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Why, David? Why doesn't he talk about adultery? Because that's what he did. He doesn't bring up adultery in there as the root issue. 
The root issue is that he lost the joy of his salvation. How many of us in the room have lost the joy of our salvation? You're no longer rejoicing. You're worried all the time. You're crying all the time. Why is my marriage in turmoil? Why am I not smiling anymore? Pray to God that he will restore the joy of your salvation. Help me to rejoice again over the fact that I'm saved. Do you remember when the disciples came back uh, doing the two-by-two? They're evangelizing. They're going into the world, and they come back, and they come bragging like, hey, yo, Jesus, this is crazy. Check it out. We were casting out demons. Folks was getting saved. You would think Jesus would be like, yo, that's what's up. Y'all know. Y'all keep that up. That's what's good. He says no. He said, be glad that your name is written in the book of life. Rejoice over that. Friends, you haven't known God if you haven't known the love of God. And to be honest with you, I don't know what life is going to throw at you when you leave this room. I don't know what's going to happen in the next moment. But I want you to remember this, that in your darkest hour, God showed up. And I don't know what will happen tomorrow at your job, but I want you to remember this. God showed up, and I don't know if your relationship is going to work out, but I want you to remember this. God showed up, and I don't know if the bottom is going to drop out tomorrow, but I want you to remember this. God showed up, and I don't know what somebody's going to say to you tomorrow, but I want you to know this, that God showed up. He showed up, church, and he's going to keep showing up, and he's going to keep showing up. It doesn't matter what life throws at us. God is going to show up time and time again. What are you going through? God is going to show up, and he's proven it. While you were an enemy of his, he showed up. And he's going to keep showing up. And no devil or no demon or no sin or nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. I'm sorry. I'm just preaching to myself now. I'm so excited about the love of God because I know this. That no matter what, my God is going to show up. Oh, he'll be there. He'll be their daughter. He'll be their son. He's going to show up, and he will not fail you. And when Satan whispers in your ear, won't you just stop going to church? Won't you stop praising God? Won't you just curse God and die? You tell him, while I was ungodly, while I was weak, while I didn't have anything, my God showed up. And you want me to walk out on God when God hasn't walked out on, on me? You want me to give up on God and God hasn't given up on me? I dare not walk away from him. He's all that I have. He's all that I need. He's all that I'm holding on to. All I need is the Lord Jesus Christ and him alone. Friends, I don't know what the doctor will say this week, but you remember God showed up. Friends, whatever you're facing this week, worship team is coming back at this time. Friends, whatever you're facing, whatever you're going through, nothing can compare to the love of God. 
Whatever you are facing next week is nothing compared to God reconciling himself to you as a sinner. Friends, the old saints used to say, ain't nothing impossible for God.